Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. Today's guest is violinist Eugene Drucker. Eugene is a founding member of the Emerson String Quartet. The quartet, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary, is an acclaimed group with more than 30 recordings, nine Grammy Awards, and multiple world tours. Having heard Eugene perform both as a soloist and also with the quartet, I can say from personal experience that I think he is one of the best musicians of our time. He has an incredible sense of musicality and produces a sound from his violin that is rare to hear. Even for those not familiar with classical music, there's something special and otherworldly about hearing Eugene play, and I encourage you to give his and the quartet's music a listen. Eugene, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jessica, for having me, and thank you for those very kind words you just spoke. Oh, I meant everyone. Mm. So I want to get to know you, and I think the best way to do it is to start at the beginning. So where were you born? I was born in Florida, but I grew up in New York City. I've lived here my whole life. Mm. And did you go to school in New York City? Yes. I went through the public school system, and in high school, I went to Music and Art, which was one of the uh, specialized public high schools. Uh, It now has been transformed into LaGuardia School of uh, Performing Arts. So if you went to the high school of music and arts, does that mean you started performing at a young age and always knew that you wanted to be a performer? I didn't start to play the violin that early. I was eight and a half when I began. And in retrospect, knowing that my father was a violinist and was uh, very intently focused on my career once it became clear that I have talent, it's a bit surprising that he waited until I was uh, that age to begin lessons with me. I didn't know right away that I wanted to become a professional musician. There were a couple of other things I was thinking about as I was growing up. What else? Well, I thought at one point of becoming a lawyer or even a politician, partly because I was very inspired by the example of President Kennedy. However, I would say I outgrew that fascination with politics uh, at a fairly (laughs) young age. And... I ended up, after music and art, going to Columbia University and the Juilliard School. So by the time I went to Juilliard, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be a musician. But at Columbia, I was an English major, English and comparative literature. So writing was often an interest of mine from those years forward. And uh, I wrote a lot of program notes for Emerson Quartet concerts and some liner notes, notes expressing uh, our personal relationship to the music that we were playing. And eventually, I had a novel called The Savior published uh, nine years ago. You mentioned that your father was a violinist. Was he a professional violinist or did he do it for fun? And is that how you came to the violin? My father was definitely a professional violinist. He had grown up in Germany and was active there before he had to flee the Nazis. Uh, And when he came to this country, he played in a number of very distinguished orchestras, among them the Cleveland Orchestra for a season, the NBC Symphony Orchestra under uh, Toscanini, and ended up 
in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra starting in 1947, where he played until his retirement, which was in the mid-1980s. Growing up, how did you find the violin? Did you study other instruments? I learned the piano a little bit first. Uh, I, I wish I had kept that up more consistently so that I could play better now. But, you know, I did develop a sense of keyboard harmony, let's say, by sitting in front of the piano uh, from the age of five, maybe. But then I, I must have lost interest in music temporarily because by the time I began violin lessons first with my father, I had to learn how to read notes all over again. Violin is is really the only instrument that I play professionally, though I can play viola fairly well. Also, it's a related instrument, of course. I still occasionally might sit at piano in order to uh, get a sense of the harmonic progressions involved in a piece of music. And uh, I compose a little bit also, so that, that was one other outlet for musical expression, which I started to develop when I was a student at Juilliard and Columbia. So you said that when you went to Columbia, you were an English major. Yes. And then when you went to Juilliard, you had made the decision that you wanted to pursue music. What changed? Well, I uh, went to both schools simultaneously. Oh, you went to both simultaneously. Yeah. It wasn't Juilliard for graduate school. No, uh, no, this, this is how it played out. I, I graduated from high school when I was 16 because I had skipped two grades. I had a great violin teacher at that point, Oscar Shumsky, a, a really great musician. And I wanted to continue studying with him on a regular basis. So it made sense somehow to try to combine Columbia and Juilliard. At that point, they did not have a joint program. So did the Emerson String Quartet happen straight out of Juilliard? Or did you have another professional opportunity after Columbia and Juilliard ended. Philip Setzer, who's the other violinist of the Emerson Quartet, and I, uh, who are the founding members of the quartet, we did meet each other at Juilliard. And uh, chamber music was a requirement there, both chamber music for piano and strings and a string quartet playing. So I think we were each in quartet with other students the first year that we knew each other, but we agreed to try playing together the following year. And we hit it off. We had a good rapport. So over the next few years, we had uh, some shifting personnel in the viola and cello seats of the quartet and uh, evolved very gradually into what I would call a professional string quartet, meaning that we were playing concerts outside the school, away from New York City, doing a little bit of touring getting paid to some extent for what we were doing, and uh, especially getting a management. Uh, that happened in the fall of 1976. So it was the bicentennial year of the U.S., which uh, explains our name, or it leads to an explanation of the name Emerson Quartet, because we wanted to have an American name with cultural overtones, something that would reflect the, the best of the American spirit. That's why we named ourselves after Ralph Waldo Emerson. It sounds like the quartet was a focus for you in Juilliard and afterwards. And I know that you perform both as a soloist and also with the quartet, but it seems that over the years you've done most of your performing with the quartet. That's correct. Going into Juilliard, did you think that you would primarily be a soloist or did you think you would primarily do chamber music or did you have no idea and you wanted to see how the evolution came about. Those are good questions, Jessica. And I didn't fully answer your previous uh, question. During those years, after I finished Juilliard when I was 21, uh, Phil Setzer was there for another year or two after I was. So we continued the association with the quartet. But 
for one thing, I had to make a living and sort of fill. So I started freelancing in New York. I played with various orchestras and uh, had the opportunity to function as, as concert master of a, a group that was called the Musica Eterna Orchestra and also played in some wonderful choral concerts with Musica Sacra. Now, coming back to the question that you just asked, what did I think would happen when I went into Juilliard? Okay. I wanted to make as much of a solo career as possible, but chamber music was extremely important to me. My father had brought me up with a strong sense of, of how important chamber music was, but I did want to develop myself as a soloist as much as possible. And that's one reason that I went to various international competitions after I finished Juilliard in order to see how far I could go. Uh, not only from a careerist point of view, but in order to develop my playing as much as possible. And then there's another career avenue possibility that I should mention, which was that of being a concertmaster of a major orchestra. This did not actually happen in my professional career, but it seemed like a viable possibility because I was concertmaster at Juilliard for a couple of years, and I got to play some uh, very important orchestral solos under some really distinguished conductors. When I was asked to audition for concertmaster position for a couple of major orchestras over the next decade or two, I didn't actually pursue that because by that time the quartet was becoming more and more of a focus in my artistic life. So the quartet is immensely successful, and I want to ask you some questions about your work with it. Mm -hmm. So I recently attended your concert at Lincoln Center as part of their 50th anniversary of the Great Performers series. Uh And... I was struck by the fact that you use music. And I imagine that it's because you perform so much and have so many different pieces that you're responsible for and you can't possibly memorize all of them. So I'm curious, how frequently are you learning a new piece? We'll start there. What we offer to concert presenters in our touring programs in any given season is probably about four programs worth of string quartets. So that means about a dozen works. There's usually three full-length string quartets on a concert program. Then there are always extras that come up. First of all, there are collaborative works, uh, quintets with pianists or violists or clarinetists, sextets, occasionally octets. So if you add in all of those extras plus some string quartets that we hadn't planned to perform when we were originally sketching out the repertoire for that season, but some presenter at a festival had a special project in mind, then it easily expands to 25 to 30 works in a season that we might be playing with some carryovers from previous seasons. And uh, in terms of absolutely new works, uh, contemporary works, well, we just started learning a new quartet uh, that we will premiere in uh, Akron, Ohio at the end of September. The Concert Society in Akron is part of a consortium of presenters that has commissioned the well-known British composer Mark Anthony Turnage to write this quartet for us. And we will perform that in uh, one of our Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center concerts in mid-October. Lovely. Another thing that struck me at your Lincoln Center concert was how seamlessly you perform the music and communicate with each other while you're doing it. And I'm just wondering, what does it take to get there? And along with that, what's your rehearsal process like? There is a backlog of sort of nonverbal information that we have 
from all our years of playing together. Not everything in the presentation of an individual or a chamber music group involves conscious decisions. Some of it is just the way the individual expresses him or herself through the instrument. Uh, some of it is purely tonal, you know, the tone that you produce. A lot of this seamlessness that you're referring to, whether or not it seems to us like seamlessness when we're up there at the moment, uh, it, it involves not only the group preparation, but the individual preparation. I was going to ask about that. What's the difference? How much are you rehearsing on your own? And then at what point do you come together as a group? And in terms of actual hours, how much time are you spending rehearsing before your first performance, let's say, of any given piece? That varies also. It depends on the level of difficulty. Like with this turnage piece, certainly we'll have to spend more hours. Uh, that's true of almost any contemporary piece. More hours, let's call it woodshedding, you know, like figuring out the, the rhythms and the meter changes than we would if we were learning a Haydn quartet that we had not played before. Now, that's not to say that the Haydn quartet is easy, but the threshold of competence that would enable you to give the first performance of a Haydn quartet or a Mozart quartet, uh, just to get through it, that threshold is a little bit lower. But if you're talking about the highest aesthetic objectives that you might have in interpreting work by those masters or, or others from the pantheon of, of music history, well, it's just about as difficult as, as any piece from the 20th, 20th or 21st century. You know, to, to play Haydn, Mozart, and early Beethoven convincingly, you have to have a lot of transparency, finesse, delicacy, but you have to be able to express your personalities through the music as well. You have to perform at least a few times before you feel comfortable with it. There's a Tchaikovsky quartet that we've been playing. It's not the most familiar of the three Tchaikovsky quartets because his, his first quartet we had uh, recorded many years ago and performed a fair amount. This, this third quartet is much darker and has various challenges that have to be dealt with. And uh, just the fact that we performed it a few times doesn't mean that we feel that we've arrived at a crystallized interpretation. With any given piece, when do you feel that you've arrived? Is there a moment? Does everyone feel they've arrived at the same time? No. We have different subjective experiences of the performances. Um, I, I know this from talking about it perhaps afterwards with the others. I mean, Do sure, you do this, that often? Do you debrief? I, I wouldn't say it's anything as formal as debriefing, you know, but if we have had the performance recorded where we have to consider whether or not to release it for broadcast, then uh, at some point within the few weeks after the performance, several of us, if not all of us, have heard the recording of the performance, and sure, we'll talk about it, whether we thought it was good enough for release, what level of release, local release or syndication through national public radio. So uh, it's not only the question of whether or not to release something, but it, the question is what can we learn from this recording about what went well and what didn't go quite so well and uh, things that we might like to adjust. And there are always things to learn when you hear yourself. There are always surprises because we're not fully objective about what we do at the moment that we're doing it. Sometimes if something didn't go well uh, and, and we felt that as it was happening, we're right about it. It didn't go well. Other times, when if something seemed like a gaffe, it, it, it might seem a lot smaller in perspective when you're listening to the performance afterwards than it did at the moment that it happened. 
On the other hand, th- you might think that things are going swimmingly and then something doesn't sound quite, quite right on the recording. So you can never take your perceptions for granted as, as being a guarantee of, of what actually happened. And when we record things in the studio for commercial release, that, of course, is a tremendous learning process because that involves going over things, making uh, several takes of each movement of a piece and choosing which take you think is the uh, best candidate for what we, we, we've often called the canvas of the interpretation on which we would then superimpose uh, uh, corrections or smaller sections where we wanted slightly different feeling. Uh, but we would usually aim for this canvas, so to speak, rather than for a pastiche of much smaller moments. Uh, but with digital editing, you do have a lot of possibilities of, of reaching for, let's call it um, a simulation of an ideal performance. But if you forget that it's meant to simulate a performance, then there will probably be a certain element lacking, an element, if not of spontaneity, at least of passion. In the recording process, the passion might come more from the dogged persistence and determination to get it as good as as you can do to, to make this interpretation, which you know might be the only time you ever record it, to make it as convincing as possible. So I can't give you a simple answer as to when we get to that aha moment. It's not it's occasionally when I'm practicing that I think, okay, I, I figured out some different fingerings or bowings, and, and now I can play this passage more smoothly than I could before. Let's see what happens at the next rehearsal when I'm playing this with the other guys in the quartet. And then something that I thought was a solution in my practicing might not seem so uh, foolproof in the rehearsal, let alone the performance with the quartet. So it's a constant process of trial and error where you, you, you deal with your disappointments if things didn't go quite the way you had hoped, and you pick yourself up and, and try to do better the next time. Who chooses the music for the quartet, and how are those decisions made? Phil Setzer is more or less our programming architect, but he does ask for our approval for any decisions that he makes. And because we play upwards of 85 concerts a year, and everybody is involved with some other things as well, we don't have quite as much time to rehearse as we might like, and therefore it's important not to overextend ourselves. He's trying to limit the amount of repertoire. Do you have a favorite composer or a particular period of music that you most enjoy playing? You know, I'm glad that that I can't answer that question in the affirmative because there are so many composers whose works I love and uh, through whom I feel I can express uh, myself in a deep way, whether or not I achieve the depth. The music certainly has it, and I, I try to channel my thoughts and feelings about the music when I play. So Bach who didn't write any string quartets, is certainly near and dear to me. His music does have so much depth. The unaccompanied works that he wrote for violin, uh, which are considered the foundation, the cornerstone of any violinist's repertoire, the six sonatas and partitas for uh, solo violin, which, which I was fortunate enough to record uh, years ago now, and I've continued to perform some of them. You heard me play the Chacon at, at an event last December, and uh, that piece particularly is, is something that I've brought back into my repertoire over and over because uh, it is a piece that transcends 
the medium for which it was written. It is larger than an unaccompanied violin. And then Mozart, I, I feel very close to Mozart, and I feel close to Haydn. Beethoven, of course, is the, the cornerstone of our repertoire, the, this, this fiery personality that he had, this intensely individualistic musical mind, somebody who was not simply going to accept the conventions, either the social conventions or the purely aesthetic conventions that governed the world of music uh, when he came into it. No, he changed the history of music. So this sense of uh, smashing boundaries, sometimes stretching them, but sometimes absolutely smashing them, that's something unique to Beethoven. And then we come to the romantic composers. Uh, well, you know, there's something about Brahms, uh, his harmonic progressions, his, his structural integrity in, in his works. It just touched me very deeply. And Dvorak's uh, lyrical gift, he, he was almost as adept in spinning melodies as Schubert. So, you know, all of these composers, I, f I just feel very close to them. And then when I get into the 20th century, my, my own personal favorite composer is Béla Bartók. I just find that his works incorporate folk music from his own native Hungary, but from many of the surrounding countries in southeastern Europe, even uh, from Turkey. And he, he did a lot of ethnomusicological research when it was not easy to do. He traveled around in the early 20th century to these remote villages with a primitive uh, phonograph, asking peasants, sometimes having to coax them to sing their songs, because he greatly feared that with the rise of, of uh, cosmopolitan lifestyle, that some of these treasures of the folk tradition would be lost. And he incorporated what he had learned into the very fabric of the music that he himself was composing. So I can see you totally light up when you talk about your favorite composers, and I can see where your passion lies. Along those lines, and talking about passions and personalities, um, do each of the members of the quartet have a specific personality that kind of comes through that you're each known for X? One person's the funny one. Well, we all have a sense of humor. In fact, in interviews, when people say, well, what is the lubricant? What enables you to work together for so many years? Uh, each one of us will say a sense of humor is very important because there are all sorts of vicissitudes in touring life and in just uh, working together with each other. And if we didn't have a sense of humor, there would be a lot of friction, I think. But our senses of humor are different from each other. So I might not be the most extroverted member of the quartet, at least at superficial glance. But, you know, I, I love a good joke as well as, as anybody does. So I, I will tend either to make uh, puns, which will sometimes elicit groans, uh, or on the other hand, I might tell lengthy jokes, which I em embellish and em embroider the, the more I tell them. Uh, but those jokes I usually don't impose on people unless I'm asked to so I want to veer away from music for a second, and I want to touch on something you said earlier, which was that you studied English at Columbia. You've written program notes, you said, for the various concerts that you've played. You also mentioned that in 2007, you wrote a book called The Savior. So where did that come from? 2007 is when the novel was published. Ah, okay. But I, I was working on it for a long time before that, and uh, to be honest... 
The very first version of it, a really primitive version, date back to the fall of 1976. And uh, then there were years where I would uh, just leave it and not get involved in it. I was trying to write some other fiction at the same time. But every time I uh, returned to work on it, I found some new elements to incorporate, something to flesh it out and give more emotional depth to the protagonist and some of the other characters. The foreground of the story takes place in a concentration camp. It involves an experiment. A violinist who has been playing for wounded soldiers as a contribution to the war effort because he himself was not physically well enough to serve is suddenly driven to a concentration camp and is not asked, but is told that he has to play for some of the inmates. This protagonist, who is a Gentile, German Gentile violinist, had a uh, Jewish best friend. And that Jewish best friend, by the way, was based on my father, that character. And he had a Jewish fiancé. But he didn't have the strength of character to follow through his convictions and to get out of Germany while he still could. So he finds himself in the Third Reich, trapped. He certainly doesn't agree with the politics or the, the ethnic uh, policies of this dictatorship. And then he finds himself in a situation where he hopes that his performances will do something to bring these quasi-catatonic uh, inmates of the camp back to life, because that's the stated objective of the commandant of the camp. And the ultimate purpose, the motivation of this experiment is not clear to him. It's not clear to the reader for most of the, the novel. That sounds like a very intense and interesting novel. And it sounds like even though it's fiction, um, with one of the characters being based on your father and also, of course, with your performance career, it's, it's also deeply personal. And I also want to talk about something else you mentioned earlier. You've ventured into composing as well. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> so how did that yeah. come up? I wrote a piece for unaccompanied violin when I was 16, and uh, my teacher, Oscar Shumsky, uh, was uh, excited about it and thought that I should develop that side of my musical personality. But I didn't do that much composing past the age of 18 or 19. And it, it was really an entirely different artistic concern of mine and a fascination that I had for the works of Shakespeare that led me back into composing more recently. Uh, because I set a handful of Shakespeare sonnets, uh, eventually seven sonnets for baritone and string quartet. I was trying to combine what I knew about string quartet from the inside as a player uh, with an, an understanding of, of the way the, the different voices of a quartet could come together and harmonies based on some of my favorite composers of the early 20th century. And I've also composed a, uh, a piece based on a distillation of four scenes from Hamlet that's called Madness and the Death of Ophelia. How can we hear these pieces? Well, four of the sonnet settings were recorded on, on a bridge uh, CD called Stony Brook Soundings. But I, I almost hesitate to talk about this because uh, my composing is still very much a work in progress. But since you talk about people pursuing the, their dreams, this is a theme of your program, I thought I should mention some of these other things. That, uh, a lot of my ambitions and dreams as a violinist have been realized 
I'm not saying that I've always arrived at exactly the place where I want to be as a violinist. I'm always striving for, for better. But um, I, I've done a lot in my career as a violinist and especially as a string quartet player. So I thought I would bring into the discussion some other areas that have remained more in the realm of dreams, uh, and especially this idea of composing is, is something that you know I don't pursue often enough consistently enough to be able to call myself a composer. But I have composed some music, and I'm eager to have some of it performed whenever that's possible. So along these lines of dreams, and you beat me to it, it's exactly what I was going to ask you next. What are your dreams for moving forward? Is it more of what you've already done? Is it something entirely different? Tell us. Probably not entirely different. I am trying to write another novel now. I, I almost hesitate to say it because uh, it's going very slowly, but I guess that's nothing new for me since it took me all those years. You've been busy. <laughs> it's not like you haven't been busy. Right. right. And uh, yeah, I, I hope to compose a little more. Uh, I recently set a poem by Denise Levertov, a great poet with whom I had the privilege to be friends during the last decade of her life. She passed away in 1997. So I composed a setting of one of her poems called The Blind Man's House at the Edge of the Cliff. And I hope to set a few more of her poems because I find them uh, very uh, mystical sometimes and very beautiful in her use of language. And I, I had to do something to get myself away from my obsession with Shakespeare. So I'm going to take us back to the quartet for a second. Yes. You're in your 40th anniversary. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. As you reflect back... How has the group changed, and what have been some of your proudest or fondest moments? It's hard to be objective about how the group has changed, but uh, one obvious marker is the advent of our new cellist, Paul Watkins. I, I would say that our sound might be a little deeper now than it was before, just as purely as a quartet sound, because uh, his cello sound is, is a dark, uh, rich, deep cello sound, and David Finkel's sound was magnificent. Uh, but if one had to borrow terminology, I would say his sounds a little bit more on the tenor side and, uh, or baritone to tenor, whereas Paul's sounds a little bit more bass to baritone. But these, these are all generalizations. David, of course, could produce a very deep sound when he wanted to also. But there has been some kind of change uh, of our tone production and our rhythmic pacing, I would say, since Paul joined the quartet. But even in the 34 years that David Finkel played with us, of course there were changes. There was evolution. Uh, we learned a lot from making our recordings. Uh, we learned when we could try to perform some of the Beethoven quartets uh, up to the, to the fast tempos that we had achieved in the recordings and when it was unrealistic to try to do that. Because you can do certain things when the microphones are close, where all the details uh, will be there, especially with careful editing, uh, which you can't do, in, uh, especially in a live acoustics of a hall. So there, there were always differences between our performances and our recordings. And uh, we couldn't help but be influenced by the passage of the years as we learned more and more repertoire, as we let certain pieces lie fallow for a few years and then would come back to them, things would change even if we didn't consciously try to make them change. It's just part of the experience of living as a musician. And now some of our proudest moments. We celebrated various milestones in our career with big performance uh, series 
the first time we ever played all the Bartok quartets in one evening, that's six major quartets in one evening, was uh, during the centenary celebrations of Bartok's birth. So this is in 1981, March 81. And we came back to this idea uh, playing it in Carnegie Hall in the in 88 and Avery Fisher Hall in 1995. In London, we played it in 95 also because that was the 50th uh, anniversary of the year of Bartok's death. So we did that a few more times. Also in our 25th anniversary season, 2001-2, we played the, the Bartok Marathon, as we called it, in New York and in London again. Uh, so those were important milestones for us. Equally important was uh, our growing involvement with the music of Shostakovich over the years. And we recorded all of his uh, quartets based on live concert performances in Aspen in the mid to late 1990s. And that recording was released in 2000 or 2001. In 2000, also, we got involved with a theater project based on the life and times of Shostakovich called The Noise of Time with a brilliant British avant-garde theater director named Simon McBurney. He had a theater company called uh, Complicité that incorporated all sorts of elements of of, uh, contemporary stagecraft, uh, including some mime artistry. And he used uh, four actors in this piece, The Noise of Time, during which we played the 15th final quartet of Shostakovich. And the four actors who had been on stage previously during that uh, theater presentation, uh, not acting specific parts, but their identities, their personae on stage were fluid. During the first 45 minutes of this theater presentation, you would hear uh, recorded excerpts of letters that Shostakovich wrote or reminiscences of his friends, speeches made at Communist Party congresses, and it it gave you a sense of the history of the Soviet Union through the life of Shostakovich as a kind of prism from the 1930s when he was in his uh, early to mid-20s all the way up to 1974 when he wrote the 15th Quartet, and he died the following year in 1975. Then, after the first 45 minutes or so of this, we came on stage and played the 15th Quartet from memory. So that was one piece that we had to memorize because it was very dark on stage. And we didn't play in a conventional quartet configuration. We were in various configurations on stage. At the very beginning, we were all facing out at the audience from the very back of the stage and between each of us was one of the actors and then the actors would sort of respond to the pathos of the music as we were performing so it was that sounds amazing yeah yeah it was a great experience we did this more than 50 times in new york london vienna berlin paris uh, la uh, ultimately in, in moscow also which was very meaningful So are you doing anything to celebrate the 40th anniversary of your season? Yes, uh, we're going to have two concerts in October at the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center in which we'll play not only string quartets, but other works that have been important to us throughout our career. So David Finkel, our former cellist, will join us for the Schubert Cello Quintet, which, by the way, when he played his final concert with the quartet in Washington three years ago, 
Paul Watkins joined us and played second cello in that quintet. Now David's going to rejoin us as second cellist for that quintet. We're also going to play the Mendelssohn Octet with a young quartet, wonderful young group called the Calidor Quartet, whom we've mentored. That's uh, partly uh, in order to showcase our activities as coaches and, and teachers. That is an important, increasingly important part of our activity. I should mention that we're the quartet in residence at Stony Brook University, and that it's been a wonderful musical and educational home to us for the past uh, 14 years. So yes, this series of concerts, two, two varied programs, will we'll give the New York premiere of that Turnage Quartet that I mentioned there, because new music has been an important part of our career as the years have gone by. And then at the end of next season, we're going to play a concert in Carnegie Hall with the great Italian pianist Maurizio Pollini. We will perform the Brahms Piano Quintet with him. We've never played with him before, but the Brahms Quintet is certainly one of the staples of our repertoire. And in the first half of the concert, we'll play Berg's Quartet, Opus 3, and the Ravel Quartet. Uh, uh, both of which have been important to us in our career. So we're glad that, th- that we have these frames at, at the beginning and end of the season in New York, ways to celebrate our 40th anniversary season. And, of course, we're doing some celebration in other cities as well, not only in New York. And I hope your celebrations include champagne receptions as well. (laughs) Definitely will, yes. Good. Um, I love that you mentioned that you're working at Stony Brook and mentoring the, the chamber music group. Along those lines, what advice do you have for musicians looking to have a career? What we always say to young string quartets is that the first four or five years of a quartet's existence are the hardest. There are a lot of centrifugal forces at play. First of all, how do you make a living? Uh, Chances are you won't get very high concert fees to begin with. That might come later if you stick with it. And uh, then there are the difficulties of adjusting to each other's playing styles and personal styles as well. Uh, So again, the sense of humor is important and uh, keeping in mind your goals, your objectives, your ideals or your dreams, to to use the word that that is the sort of touchstone for this series. It's important to remember your joint goals and uh, just to to know that after you've gotten through the first four or five years of a career, you'll be in a better position to take stock of what you've accomplished and what your potential will be and, and what you might realistically hope to achieve over the next five years and beyond. So to keep going. Yes. I really just want to thank you so much for your time here today. It was wonderful speaking with you. I hope this is just the beginning of many conversations, and thank you for your time. Thank you for yours and for having me on this lovely series. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.